Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders for our church. When I was growing up, as a child, the greatest trouble in our home was never an act of overt disobedience or rebellion. Instead, the greatest trouble that we faced was the anger and the broken trust that resulted from acts of disobedience and rebellion. And this anger, this broken trust was not just between uh, us children and our parents, but also between siblings. Sometimes when I was younger, the, the tension was so high in the household that I would retreat from the house to my secret pond. I had this little place, a gully near our house where a creek ran in between a candy shop and a cemetery near the near the railroad tracks where the, the waters pulled together into a serene, mossy mess. I would go and sit there to regain my equilibrium. Sometimes I would just cry it out. Sometimes I would think through what had taken place. Perhaps you can relate to me in, in whatever way that looks like for you. Maybe you know that, that humans are a tenacious race and can learn to overcome many, many challenges. But the hardest thing about suffering usually is having to do it alone. The greatest heartbreak comes after people get close to each other, and then that closeness is betrayed. Intimacy that once was promised is now threatened, and relationships are broken. We all have ways to deal with this. Sometimes we go inward. Sometimes we harden our hearts and toughen up. Sometimes we try to escape and find something else to make up for it. I think you know that all these solutions are inadequate. What if the Lord made it so we could find a true and lasting solution, such that our closeness to him could never be threatened? What if there was a way to have one relationship with the person who matters the most to you and ensure that you would never again suffer the pain and loss of betrayal or broken trust? We'll see this this morning. We'll see that the people of Israel get themselves into deep trouble. We'll, we'll be in Exodus chapter 32. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, so it's near the beginning. You want to find chapter 32. And these people of Israel get themselves into deep trouble. And their most troubling trouble is not what they do to themselves, but it's what happens to their chances of living in relationship with Yahweh, their God, their source of life. So we'll see four things this morning on your outline. How we get ourselves into trouble. What our most troubling trouble is. Our inadequate solution. And God's superior yet murky solution. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we come to you as beggars. And Lord, we beg of you. We, we only want to be close to you. 
We want to draw near. We want to receive your mercy and your grace and to know you. You are life. And we can only know you through Jesus. Lord, we want more of Jesus. And you have told us this is a prayer you delight to answer. And so please hear us, Lord. Forgive us. Draw us near to you that we might have life as we have the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. Help us as we study your word now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the people of Israel had been slaves in Egypt, but Yahweh, their God, sent a man named Moses to rescue them. They're now camped at the foot of a mountain so sacred they can't even touch it. And God has made his treaty with them, summarized it in ten commandments, and then expanded upon in dozens of specific case laws. This this treaty was sealed with a meal halfway up the mountain with God, Moses, and 70 of the elders of the people. But since that point, for about a month, Moses has been up on top of the mountain receiving detailed blueprints from God for a majestic tent so God can dwell in the middle of his people. God had told Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go so they could celebrate a feast to him in the wilderness. That feast is on its way in the form of celebrating God's presence among them. And yet, they get nervous and restless. So let's see how we get ourselves into trouble in verses 1 through 10 of Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden cap. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And Yahweh said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. This first section of the chapter begins with the people getting a little impatient 
And it ends with God preparing to consume them. And in case you were wondering, this is not a good thing. Let's take notice of how they get themselves into such trouble. They do it through, well, two things we'll see. First, letter A. We forget who rescued us and now leads us. In verse 1, they're not sure if Moses will survive the thunderstorm of God's presence, the deep darkness, the lightning, and the, the, the trumpet sound on the mountaintop that he's entered into. But they need someone to lead them to their destiny. And so in verse 1, they want gods who shall go before us. They need someone to lead them. In verses 2 through 4, Aaron, who is the brother of Moses, he had been left behind by Moses to be in charge of these people. He now takes their gold earrings and he fashions a golden calf statue out of it. Notice how much effort goes into it. In verse 4, draws attention to the fact that Aaron fashioned this statue with an engraving tool. This will become important later. He is chiseling and he is working in developing here. At the end of verse 4, the people then say, These are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Which is the same thing Yahweh had said in chapter 20 when he introduced the Ten Commandments. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So in verse 5, Aaron sees what these people are doing. And he builds an altar and he tries to make it about Yahweh. Yahweh is supposed to be their God. They wanted gods in verse 1 to go before them. But Aaron declares, this is not a new God. This is all about Yahweh. This is worshiping Yahweh. He wants this to be a feast for Yahweh, the feast they've been waiting for since Moses said it to Pharaoh all those months ago. The key ideas here are that they think this calf statue represents the God who rescued them from Egypt and the God who will lead them to their new place. How does this apply to us? Friends, this is the same way we get ourselves into trouble. It starts by forgetting who will lead us, and that leads to forgetting who rescued us. Let me explain what I mean. Why does it start by forgetting who will lead us? Because this is where we live. We, we live where we live and we look to the future and we feel anxious. We are not sure what is going on around us or how we'll get through it. It could be illness or career setbacks or loneliness or unruly children, rebellious teenagers, peer pressure, oppressive instructors or supervisors, or whatever. We face this pressure, and we look to the future, and we wonder how we will get through it. How will I get from today to the next day? And we look to all kinds of things to lead us through the wilderness and into the promised land. It could be psychology or leadership gurus or the next news cycle or maybe the next election cycle. But we want some new expert with some new research to tell us what we need to know to na navigate life's complexity. And we forget the God who will lead us. 
And when we forget the God who will lead us, the next step is that we forget who rescued us. We, we forget how we got here in the first place. We get so used to looking inside, to following our hearts. Or we get used to being told what to do by every gust of wind in the world around us. That we forget we don't deserve to be here. Unless the Lord had built this house, we would have labored in vain. That we forget that all we have and all we are belongs to Him. And, and apart from Him, we can do nothing. That He bought us with a price and He now owns us. So we're no longer amazed by God's grace. Maybe we're just bored of discussing it, so we stop thinking about it and we think about other things instead. How do you know whether you have forgotten who rescued you and who now leads you? Probably you already know if you've forgotten. But in case you're not sure, here are a few questions. How is your prayer life? How vigorous is your time in the scripture? Is God important to you? Are you bored in church? Are you tired of studying Exodus? It's such a long book. Do you ever break out into spontaneous song or worship or prayer or just calling out? To the Lord Jesus, when you feel the pressure. We've been talking a lot for many months about getting to know your neighbors. Do you even care about the topic or do you shut down when we bring it up? And when we mention the opportunity to lead other people to Christ for rescue. Have you forgotten the God who leads you and has rescued you and wants to use you? to lead and rescue others. How would you end this sentence? My problems would be solved if only blank. And when you answer that sentence, does your answer have anything to say about God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit? Just this past week, I had a tremendous amount of anxiety one night when I left my iPad with all my sermons on it behind me at Wegmans after a meeting with someone. It's sort of a silly example, but honestly, it took me a while to deal with the breathlessness and the heart-pounding anxiety that immediately hit me, to realize that I could actually trust in the one who rescued me, that he could lead me with or without my device. He could still lead me. And he would get me through to a good place according to his will. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and, and you don't consider yourself a Christian. Perhaps you're saying, see, this is the problem with you Christians. You're always talking about getting saved or being rescued as though there's something wrong with everybody. You won't try anything without waving your hand over it naming the name of Jesus and hoping that it makes all your problems go away. And if you're thinking anything like that, I would say, you've got it just about right. You do. We wave our hand and we name the name of Jesus and we hope 
that makes our problems go away because he said that was our hope. And I would ask you, if you don't have Jesus, what do you have? And is it working for you? I would love to hear more from you and, and engage with you, hear from you after the service about that. What else you have and if it's working for you? That's the first way we get ourselves into trouble is we forget who rescued us and now leads us. Second, letter B, we bring into question whose people we are. In verse 7, the cinematography shifts suddenly from the foot of the mountain to the top of the mountain with an ominous musical cue. As in verse 7, Yahweh says to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And in verse 9, I have seen these this people and behold it is a stiff-necked people. The idea is they won't bend to anything. Verse 10, leave me alone so I may consume them and remake you into a great nation. These few verses ought to terrify us. When we consider where we've been in in chapter 3, God said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And in chapter 4, he told Moses to tell Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And in chapter 19, God says that I, bro- I bore you on eagle's wings and to the people, I brought you to myself. And in 25, he said to Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Yahweh, God, has identified with these people all through the book, in their enslavement, in their suffering, in their rescue, in their establishment, in his treaty with them. But now, like that, he calls them Moses' people. He says that Moses brought them up out of Egypt. This is not good. And this is what happens when we forget who leads us and who rescues us. We, too, bring into question whose people we are. And we need to take this very seriously. Even the New Testament takes this very seriously. Jesus said, we would prove to be his disciples when we abide in his word and follow him. Let the impact of those words fully sink in. Fail to abide in his words, fail to follow him, and there is reason to wonder who your God is. I'm not saying that you can do anything to save yourself, and I'm not saying you can do anything to unsave yourself. The Lord will have his way with you. But when we fail to do these things on a persistent basis, we who were close drift. There is reason to know who your God is. Hebrews chapter 2 says we must be very careful to pay attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. When we forget who rescued us and now leads us, we bring into question whose people we are, and that's what's at stake here. God knows what he's going to do with these people. 
But he is bringing that into question. Moses, your people, what are we going to do? And so that's how we get ourselves into trouble. Moving on, let's make sure we understand what our most troubling trouble is in verses 11 through 20. As we get ourselves into trouble, let's not lose sight of what that greatest trouble is. And I mentioned this in my introduction. It's not the overt disobedience or rebellion itself. And it's not even the consequences of disobedience that make our lives harder, though such consequences may be severe. Our greatest trouble, our most troubling trouble, is the impact on the relationship that matters most. It's the broken relationship with God. And we see this illustrated in verses 11 through 20. But Moses implored Yahweh his God and said, O Yahweh, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And Yahweh relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf, And the dancing Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Here, in this section, there is something amazing. We see fully-fledged Moses finally doing what God called him to do many, many chapters ago, which is to mediate between God and the people. God called him to this back in chapter 3. He didn't want to do it. He resisted it. He started to do it. He even changed his mind in chapter 5, and God brought him along, and now here he is mediating between God and the people. The point of this section is not that God is a whiny, out-of-control, or unpredictable deity like so many Greek and Roman gods who bless or curse their people on a whim. That is not the point. 
That is not at all what is going on here. The point is that God is acting in such a way as to allow Moses to be in a position of a go-between. Between God and the people. Look at how he does this. In verses 11 to 14, Moses represents the people's best interest to God. And then in verses 15 to 20, Moses goes down and represents God's best interests to the people. His mediation goes exactly both ways in trying to bring them back together. What do we mean by this? How does this play out? In the first part, verses 12 and 13, the best interest of these people is for Moses to persuade God to turn, to relent, and to remember his oaths. And God does. Moses argues on behalf of the people, and God relents. And then in the second half, in verses 19 and 20, the best interest of Yahweh is for Moses to convince the people in no uncertain terms that such worship and such unbridled sensual revelry as they're participating in is unacceptable. And so Moses' anger burns in verse 19, not like a rash temper tantrum, but in reflection of Yahweh as an imitation of Yahweh whose anger burned hot in verses 10 and 12. Moses is representing the Lord to the people. And when Moses smashes those two stone tablets in verse 19, he's not being petulant, but he's doing it to demonstrate that the covenant itself, verse 16 says, these two tablets were the work of God. The covenant, the treaty, the work of God has been broken. And so the tablets must be destroyed to signify that before they even get to build God's majestic tent. Right after they swore in chapter 24 to do everything that Yahweh had commanded. Before we even get this thing off the ground, the treaty is broken. The relationship is severed. The special bond between Yahweh and these people has been ripped apart. They're not even finished with the honeymoon and the divorce has taken place. This is our most troubling trouble. Your greatest trouble is not your struggle to advance in your career. It is not your failing health. And in my life, it is not our recent discovery about our roof that has become structurally unsound and is in danger of collapsing. This consumes my thoughts day by day. And we need to basically wipe out our savings to rebuild this thing, which is the death of some dreams that we were, had been saving up for. These things are not our most troubling trouble. Our most troubling trouble is a broken, a damaged relationship with the Lord and the giver of life. If you fear for anything, you ought to fear this. Don't lose your connection to him who alone does what is right and just. Don't take for granted your access to divine mercy and faithfulness. 
As I already mentioned, Hebrews 2.1 says, We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Let us fear this. And so when we sense the drifting, when we feel the weight of our choices, we feel exposed. We ought to feel naked and exposed before him with whom we have to do. The pain is palpable and it drives us to the brink of insanity. And so verses 21 through 24 show us our inadequate solution. Verse 21, and Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. Let's just try that. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Can you you hear the shrugged shoulders as he says it? My kids do that to me. I see them do something, and I turn, I just give them a look, and they're like, just shrug their shoulders, like, like they don't know what they just did or how it happened. Moses confronts Aaron on his obvious role in the situation, and Aaron tries to weasel out. First, he blames the people in verse 22. You know them. They are set on evil. And then second, he blames his circumstances. I just, I'm just, I don't know what's happening. I didn't do it on purpose. I threw the gold into the fire, and out came this cat. But, uh. Remember, up up above, we know this is a ridiculous attempt to escape blame because the narrator made very clear earlier that that Aaron fashioned this thing carefully with a graving tool. Okay, this was pretty thought through. Aaron is is very fitting for these people because they tried to self-medicate their pain with false worship, eating, drinking, and pleasurable revelry. in order to deal with their anxiety and nervousness at Moses' absence. And Aaron is just like them. He's self-medicating. He's trying to numb the pain with all this blame-shifting and excuse-making. How does this apply to us? Think about our inadequate solution to our pain and beware the dangers of self-medicating. Whether we get ourselves into trouble or whether trouble simply finds us on its own and we get in trouble and we're struggling with life, we must be prepared for the temptation to medicate. We will look for ways to numb the pain of our trouble. And in order to do this, we seek out pleasure. We try to numb the pain through pleasure or through escape. Let me get away from this or through withdrawal. Let me get away from the people. Who are troubling me. We do this through shifting the blame, through making excuses, through justifying ourselves. We have all kinds of tactics. And children, you can be aware of this too. When you're caught, when you're in trouble, when something goes wrong, or if you're sad, or angry, or discouraged, or scared, it never helps to yell 
at someone or to throw a fit. It feels like it's going to make it better if you just let loose, but it won't make it better. If we choose to sin instead of trusting the Lord, Jesus, we always make the situation worse instead of making it better. Always. And for everybody, please understand this insanity. This is insanity, and we need to call it as such. And I am as guilty of it as anybody else. We all do it. Why would we ever think that the answer to our pain is sinning? As though another journey down a dark road will produce light. As though, for example, viewing porn on the computer will make things right in my life. As though we can make life better by moving even farther from the Lord. Oh, I feel far from him. What am I going to do? How am I going to fix that? Oh, let me do this thing that will take me even farther. As though we can draw close by running away. These contradictions are insane. That's what we do. And this solution never works. So we need some good news. We need some good news. Finally, God's superior yet murky solution. Verses 25 through 35. In his mercy, God does two things to restore us to relationship with him. God's solutions are true solutions, unlike our inadequate solutions. And I say these are murky solutions because we're only in Exodus. Jesus hasn't come yet. So they're going to be murky here. But when Jesus comes on the, on, on, on stage, then everything clarifies and makes, makes sense. Solution number one, God blesses nonconformity. God blesses nonconformity. Verses 25 through 29. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on Yahweh's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did, according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of Yahweh, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Now, you may feel shocked by this extreme situation, and it is shocking, and it is extreme. The point is not for us to strap on swords and personally execute sinners. The point here is to show Israel and to show us reading this that sin leads to death. Sin is so ugly and devastating that the outcome is death. And yet those few who resist it, those who join Moses in covenant with Yahweh, receive a special blessing and appointment to service. Friends, when Jesus came, he didn't strap a sword on his side. He took a sword in his side. He died to give life to those who could not win life for themselves. And he told us of a broad road traveled by the majority of the world's population with a broad gate and a destiny of destruction. 
but those who follow him, laying down their lives for him who enter the narrow gate, who resist the world and resist conformity to the prevailing patterns of sinful thought and behavior, they would find life eternal. They don't earn life by their good deeds, but they find life because they take the risk of clinging to Jesus. God's first solution is to bless nonconformity. But his second solution is why that works. The first one works. Why the first one works is because solution number two, God covers our sin. God covers our sin. Verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to Yahweh. Perhaps I can make atonement, which means covering for your sin. So Moses returned to Yahweh and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But Yahweh said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then Yahweh sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Moses' only hope for these people is, is if perhaps he can go back up on the mountain and cover their sin, make atonement for their sin. And this covering involves forgiveness, which he asks for in verse 32. And it involves substitution. When in verse 32, when Moses offers himself in their place, please blot me out of the book that you've written instead of them. But this is all very, very murky here. God says that Moses' substitution is not good enough. In verse 33, he must still punish sinners. In verse 34, he does, he goes on to say that his angel will still lead them. That seems good. But then in verse 35, he strikes them with a plague. It's like on again, off again. This is like teenage romance a little bit. It's because we're in Exodus. Because Jesus hasn't come yet. Clearly, the atonement, the covering has not happened yet. It's all very strange and very unresolved. And the next chapter, which we'll take a look at next week, will explain much more about this covering that must take place. It will show us how the relationship can be fully reconciled between the two. But at this point, at the end of chapter 32, we're left waiting and longing for another mediator, one who will be like Moses, but yet actually be effective. One who will stand in our place, representing our best interests before the Lord. One who will stand in the Lord's place, representing his best interests for our good. One who can actually cover sin, offer forgiveness, and reconcile us with God. You know who we're waiting for. Only the Lord Jesus can do these things. He lived a life of complete worship of the Father. He died the death we deserve, taking our place, 
and suffering complete separation from the Father for a time. So, in summary, we get ourselves into trouble when we forget who leads us and who rescues us. Our most troubling trouble is not the pain of life choices or life circumstances, but our most troubling trouble is our broken relationship with God. Our inadequate solution is to sin or shift the blame or justify ourselves to numb the pain. But God's superior solution is to send Jesus in our place, blessing nonconformity and covering our sin once and for all. Let's pray and give thanks to this mighty God we serve. Our Father, you are the Lord, and we praise you for Jesus, who has dealt with our broken relationship with you. Lord, Jesus is our only hope. Help us to cling to him. Help us to walk the narrow path he has laid out before us. Help us to to love Jesus. Help us not to forget who rescued us and who will lead us through the troubles of life. We pray that you would do these things for the sake of your glory, because of your oaths, which you made to our ancestors, to make for yourself a great people and to fill the earth. We pray you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.